Hello, good morning, and welcome, everyone. Hello. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ash. Um, I've had the privilege of being part of this church for nearly three years now. But since February, myself, my wife Jess, and our son Evan have been part of the, the nine o'clock service just over there. So this is a, a really nice treat to be back in this slightly bigger room with a few more people, a lot of familiar faces to me. So it's lovely uh, to be back with you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll say that again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, Those words were written by a Canadian pastor, a guy called A.W. Tozer, a little while ago. And uh, the, the truth expressed in those words, I think, are just as uh, true and valuable today as they were back then. And actually, it's a truth that has gripped me uh, literally in the past week. For a little while, a few weeks, a few months, I've just been wondering. I've, I've felt a little bit flat in life, not entirely satisfied. I've, I've not been able to put my finger on what exactly it has been. I've thought, is it just the stresses and the strains of life? Um, is it uh, just distractions, what exactly is going on? And uh, reading a book of A.W. Tozer, I I came to realize that really my biggest issue has been my perception of God. It has been the way that I have seen and understood who God is. I'd actually planned to preach on something else, I'd put a fair bit of preparation in, and it was literally Wednesday of this week that that happened, but I'm so glad that it did happen. And, um, you know, I, I... I'm just looking out, and a few of us here are glasses wearers, so you you may have had a similar experience to me. So a number of years ago, I uh, went for my eye test. I think they're due once every two years or so. I I was a little overdue at this point. And the reason I was overdue is because I thought there's nothing wrong. Well, there clearly is something wrong with my eyes. But I thought, well, they've not got any worse since the last time I had an eye test. But I went anyway because I fancied a new fancy set of frames. Well done, Andy. Um, So I went for this test, and the optician told me that my eyes were marginally worse than they had been before. So I needed a new prescription, new lenses, and new frames. And uh, the moment that I changed the glasses over, put the new glasses on, it was amazing. It was like all of a sudden, everything was in high-definition, glorious Technicolor. I thought my eyesight was okay beforehand, but I put the new glasses on, and all of a sudden, there were things in the room that I didn't realize were there, were clearly there. And you know, guys, I I believe that today that God would almost want to do something like that for us spiritually, okay? Give us some new sight spiritually. So as much as this truth has really gripped me and got me, I think it is actually for all of us. Now, our church vision is uh, about helping Bristol to believe, and there are a few strands to that. So we intend to do it through uh, reaching all of Bristol, all different types of people across the city with the good news of Jesus. Uh, We intend to do it by restoring some of the social fabric of this city. And we intend to do it by resourcing the establishment of more sites of this church and more churches in other cities by making disciples and training leaders. And that is a very exciting vision to go for. But the reality is, I I think one of the things that, that kind of sit at the center of that, something that's part of the engine that's going to enable us to do that will be our perception of God. We need to see him rightly. 
And uh, we see God most clearly in the Bible. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 24. The Psalms are the, the, the songbook of the Bible. They're an expression of praise to God. They articulate something of his character and his deeds, some things that he has done. So we're looking at Psalm 24 today. This one was written by David, the second king of Israel. And it should come up on the screen behind me. I'm, I'm working from the English Standard Version. So let's read together. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Okay, so as we work our way through this psalm, I'd like for you guys to, um, just in your mind, be thinking, um, be thinking, as we go through, what is it that we see of God? So we're going to see some things about God. We're going to see some things about ourselves. And then we're going to see how we ought to respond, given what we understand of God and ourselves. So as we go through, just have those questions in your mind. I want to go back to that first sentence. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, guys, if we rightly grasp that first sentence, I believe it will change our lives. I believe it will change our lives because it blows away our common conception of God. Um, now, the ancient Greeks, they had a, a pantheon of gods. So for any of you who've ever watched Clash of the Titans or Wrath of the Titans, you might be familiar with some of those Greek gods. You might be familiar with Zeus or Poseidon or Aphrodite. But the interesting thing about the, the, the Greek gods, and particularly in the, in the film, is that, well, they were essentially like us, but just a little bit better. So a little bit braver, a little bit wiser, a little bit more beautiful, but fundamentally, they were just like us. So had the same issues of pride and envy and relational squabbles. The Greek gods were humans, but just a little bit better. And I think one of the dangers is that we can take the God of the Bible and apply that same way of thinking. We can think he's just like us, but just a little bit better. We're in danger of thinking, for example, or I'm in danger of thinking, I own some things, these glasses, the phone, the keys, the wallet, the shoes. I can look out at Ben Welshman. He also owns some things. I can then think of Queen Elizabeth and think she owns maybe a few more things. And then there is God who also owns some things. But that couldn't be anywhere further from the truth. The reality is, the reality that we see from the Bible, and in particular, this psalm, is that God, in fact, is the only one who truly owns anything. Everything that you can look at and point to belongs to God. So, in fact, these glasses do not belong to me. 
The shoes don't belong to me. The phone doesn't belong to me. This body that I've been walking with for the past 33 years does not belong to me. In fact, belongs to God. God is the only one who truly owns anything. We own nothing. Now, that might come as a bit of a surprise and a shock to some of you who have mortgages and you know, you've, you've, you've worked really hard for certain things, but the reality is the only one who truly owns anything is God. He owns. We own nothing at all. Why and how is it that God owns? Verse 2, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David the psalmist is talking about the earth and everything in it. He's saying that God owns everything because he made everything. God has created everything. God is the creator. We are the created. Now, at this point, you might want to disagree with me and say, well, no, we're, we're also creative, aren't we? We've just been served by uh, an excellently gifted bunch of musicians up here. Created, uh, sorry, created, yes, they are created. Gifted, sorry, with a particular kind of creativity. Some of us in this room, um, our creativity is expressed in terms of drawing or painting, maybe. For some of you, it might even be engineering, it might be cooking. Do you know what? All of those forms of creativity are, are essentially an imitation. You could cook the the, the most glorious meal that anyone has ever had in their life. The reality is, what you would be doing is you'd be taking some ingredients, you'd be rearranging, applying some chemical processes, and delivering that on a plate. And that's a good thing to do. But when God creates, he makes something out of nothing. So yes, we imitate his creativity, but we are, we are absolutely worlds apart, okay? So God is the owner and God is the creator. Now, we've just done a little bit of theology there. Let's not be frightened by that word. Theology is um, it's the study of God. But, you know, whenever we do theology, it, it ought not just to remain, remain in our minds. It's not just information. All study of God ought to do something in here, in our hearts. It ought to change us ought to change our desires, ought to change the way that we live. So thinking about this truth of God being the owner and the creator, what does that do for us? Well, I believe that it, it both comforts us and challenges us. How does it comfort? Well, if God owns everything, it means that God has a vested interest in everything. Now, I'm a, I'm a Londoner, born and raised, uh, spent a number of years in Manchester, Moved back to London for a few years and now in the glorious city of Bristol. Now, I have enjoyed all of those cities. They all have a very special place in my heart. Oftentimes, when I, when I meet people for the first time, I like to get a bit of a feel for them. I like to, to hear about um, maybe where they've grown up or where they live. And oftentimes, I'm, I'm saddened by the interaction. Because for many people, when we talk about where they live or where they've grown up, um, the, the overriding tone is of negativity. People say, well, yeah, I grew up there, but there's nothing much to it. I certainly wouldn't want to move back there. It's a bit of a dump. It's a bit of a dive. Forget about that place. Quite a negative tone. And part of the reason why it saddens me is because their perspective on where they live or where they grew up is entirely different to God's perspective. The reality is God is absolutely interested in where you live. God is absolutely interested in the school that you send your children to. God is absolutely interested in the parks of this city. 
He's absolutely interested in the coffee shops in which you hang out. God is interested because he owns it all. And I think this is the truth that we really need to grasp. God is absolutely interested. But he's not just interested in in things, in institutions, in places. God is one who knows people. And it's likely that in a, in a room of this size with this many people, some of us, even some of us here today, will at times experience what it is to feel unrecognized, underappreciated, not known, not valued. That is, that is an experience that some of us will have. And part of that is because as humans, we don't always treat each other in the way that we ought to. But again, there's a danger. There's a danger of us taking the way that others treat us and applying that same way of thinking to God, assuming, well, if no one else knows me, understands what I'm going through, the struggles that I face, surely it's exactly the same with the God of the Bible. And again, that couldn't be any, any further away from the truth. The Bible actually tells us that even the very hairs on our heads are, are numbered. God knows everybody intimately. I remember a number of years ago, um, up in Manchester, e-wigging on a bit of a conversation between two guys. They were part of a team that was organizing a gospel music concert. It was at Easter time. And one of the guys just said to his mate, he said, look, I've put so much work into this and I'm really tired. I don't know how it's going to go. I've got exams. I've got essays. I've got various things to do. I'm running out of energy. I just want this thing to go well. I just want this thing to go well. And his friend just turned to him and said, two words. God knows. Two simple words, God knows. And I believe those words made the world of difference to him. There weren't any changes in terms of his circumstances, but just that that reality, that understanding that God knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows the anxieties that we face. He knows the stresses and the struggles. He knows the, the joys of our hearts. God knows everybody in this room. God, in fact, knows everybody in Bristol. So God is interested and God knows. So there is a comfort to us in this, in this truth, this reality of God being owner and creator. But there's also a challenge there. If God is the owner, what that means is that we are stewards. We are those who are responsible. Okay? So we, we look after God's things on his behalf. And I think we all know a little bit of the experience of, of, of being stewards, of being responsible uh, for things on someone else's behalf. It's, it's part of what it is to grow into maturity, into adulthood. And I like to think of it in terms of uh, various levels. Um, so, for example, if I'm at someone's house enjoying a cup of tea or uh, a cup of coffee, um, there'll be a few, few thoughts that go through my mind. So just to let you guys know, myself and my wife, Jess, we, are, um, we really appreciate nice mugs, nice crockery. That's, that's a, bit of a bit of a thing for us, okay? Bit of a thing. So oftentimes, when I'm given that, that tea or that coffee, I think, lovely, I've, I've been looking forward to this, I've been waiting for this, but then quite, quite soon in, maybe 10, 20 seconds in, I'll, start, I'll think to myself, Ash, whatever you do, do not drop this mug. Do not drop the mug, do not spill the drink. Now, I don't tend to have issues with spilling things at home, but for some reason, I'm in someone else's house, and those thoughts assail me, look after this mug. Don't drop it, it's well-crafted, it's clearly really expensive. Don't spill the drink. Okay, so next time I'm at your house, please guys, just put me, put me at ease. I just need to know that it doesn't matter whether I break your crockery or 
not. But I feel the weight of responsibility because the mug isn't mine. How about the next level? Um, who here has ever spent any, any length of time looking after someone else's child? Just raise your hand. Any length of time at all. Oh, that's like the majority, pretty much everyone here. Um, now, I have a child. Um, he's, he's nearly two, be two in September. Um, I feel reasonably comfortable with, with children at the moment, but do you know what? Looking after other people's children is a big stress. And that's not, that's not about me not loving children. It's a big stress because, well, when a parent hands their child over to you, there is an expectation that you will hand the child back to them in the state that you receive the child. Yeah? Big responsibility. I coach athletics. I coach um, young people. An athletics track can be a really dangerous place to be. There are javelins flying about and hammers and hurdles that are bigger than a lot, of the, you know, a lot of the young athletes. Very dangerous place to be. To be honest, I get to the end of most sessions, and if no one's injured themselves, I'm happy, okay? I'm happy. I feel that weight of responsibility. Now, look, guys, if we feel that responsibility, or if I feel that responsibility with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and if we feel that weight of responsibility with other people's children, how much more so when we consider that everything belongs to God? We are responsible for everything and everyone. The person sitting on your left and your right has been made by God. They've been created by God. You are responsible for that person. You are responsible to treat them with honor and dignity and respect. That is a big responsibility. Okay, God is the owner, we are the stewards. So this God is clearly different to us. This God is clearly attractive. This amazing God who owns everything that you could ever see and things that you can't even see. This amazing God who has created everything, he is attractive. Surely we'd want to get to know this God. Surely we would want to approach this God. So it begs the question, how do we do that? How can we approach this amazing God? Well, David himself asks that question. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Well, the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Uh, David uses the language of, of, of hills, and maybe in other translations, it's, it's a mountain. Oftentimes in the Bible, when you see a hill or a mountain, it's, it's talking about God. It's that idea of God being up there and us having to reach him up there. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who, we, who may approach God? It's he who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Well, what is meant by that term, clean hands? Well, clean hands relates to our, our deeds, what we do. Now imagine yourself on your very best day. Now when I say your best day, I mean the, the kind of day where you wake up before the alarm has gone off. As the sun rises, you leave your house, you go for that morning run, you come back, you shower, you prepare a master chef level breakfast. You then leave the house for the first appointment of the day, whatever that looks like for you. Within that first hour of leaving the house, you've basically knocked it out of the park. You've, you've delivered on everything that you hoped for or expected in that day. But you continue on anyway. Lunchtime, you're surrounded by friends, you're cracking jokes, you're actually laughing at all of your jokes. You're giving recommendations for books and, and music and films, and everyone's actually listening and taking it on board. Imagine that kind of day. 
Now, even on that day, by the time you get back and put your head on the pillow to sleep, if you were to look back and think about just, just, just the deeds and what it looked like for you, even on that day, you would say, do you know what? There are some things in the day that I'm not proud of. Some areas where I messed up, where I slipped up. There were some things that if I could go back and do it again, I would do it differently. Even on our very best days. And even if for some of us we think, do you know what? No, I've had a few days where I wouldn't change anything. I would say, ask, ask your friends, ask your family. I'm sure their response would be different, okay? Even on our very best days, we fail in this area. We fail in this area of living with clean hands, even the best of us. What about the next one, a pure heart? What does it mean to have a pure heart? Well, that speaks of our motives, what's going on internally. I regularly have the experience, and maybe some of you guys do too, of being in group conversations with people. And as the conversation goes on, I think, you know, there are a few things here that I, I don't actually agree with, but I'm remaining silent, I'm not saying anything. And the conversation is taking a very negative turn, and yet I'm still remaining silent, or, or even worse than that, I'm just chuckling along. And I get to the, the conversation finishes, we go off to wherever we're going, and I think to myself, do you know what? I shouldn't have done that. I should have said something. I should have stood up for that person. Well, why didn't I do that? Because of my heart. I was more interested in what people thought of me than doing the right thing. And I've, got, I've just got to be honest, that is, a, that is a regular occurrence for me. More than weekly, regular occurrence for me. My heart in the wrong place. More concerned about me and my security and my comfort and, you know, what does well for me. It is possible, so even for example, a couple of weeks ago, Ben um, asked me, said, Ash, would you be up for, for preaching on this particular Sunday? And the immediate answer is, yes, it's a fantastic opportunity to serve God, honor God, and, and serve the church. Absolutely. But you know what? Alongside that genuine desire to honor God and to serve all of you guys, there's part of the heart that's like, you know what, this is, a, this is also a good opportunity to stand up with everybody looking at me and to be impressed by me, to be impressed by my words and my wisdom and my funny-ish jokes that you've kind of been laughing at already, yeah? That, that is genuinely a, a real struggle. And I think we, and it's not just about standing up here and preaching. I think for all of us, we'd find ourselves in situations where we're doing good things, but if we're entirely honest with ourselves, part of our hearts aren't quite in the right place. Rather than thinking about how can I use this as an opportunity to serve others and honor God, we're thinking, oh, this is an opportunity for, for me to further my own ends, to look good. So in terms of this thing of pure heart, again, we, we fail at this hurdle. The first two hurdles, we've, we've failed. We've clattered them. What's the next one? The next one is he who does not lift up his soul to what is false. In some translations, it might talk about he who does not trust in idols. Well, what is an idol? An idol is often a good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. And I think there's a helpful way for us to discover what our potential idols might be. So consider the following sentence. If only I had dot, 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 then I'd be happy. Or, if only I achieved dot, 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 then life would be as I want it to be. Whatever that dot, dot, dot is for you, if it's not Jesus, it might potentially be a bit of an idol. And the, the issue with idols, this is why idols are, are, are bad things for us, is that they, they promise more than they can deliver. And oftentimes, these are actually really genuinely good things. 
So for you, it might be, well, um, the idol might be uh, the, pr uh, the expectation of a, a new job or a, prom or a promotion. Now, a new job or a promotion is not inherently a bad thing, but if you're thinking that this job is going to entirely satisfy you in life and deal with all of your issues, I've got to be honest with you, you are sorely mistaken, and it's, and it's going to hurt. It really is going to hurt you. And that's, uh, I think, you know what, uh, I'm struggling for words here, but I, I think this thing of idols, we really need to understand and deal with, because idols are absolutely toxic. I had one that actually stopped me from becoming a Christian. So I've talked a little bit about being an athletics coach. Um, before I was an athletics coach, I was a younger, fitter man, well, not really a man, I was a boy. Um, and I, I was heavily involved in athletics. I was a long jumper and triple jumper. And it was one of the things, probably the main thing, that I was known for and appreciated for by my peers. So when I competed really well, everyone liked me. It was all smiles. It was all thumbs up. When I didn't compete so well, all of a sudden I was kind of cast aside. And what happened for me was I, I put all of my sense of worth into this thing called athletics. But then I got to a certain stage where injury set in and I didn't quite perform at a level that I had hoped for or expected. And I came to a realization. I came to the realization that I had put all of my eggs in this one basket. Basically, all of my sense of joy and, uh, and delight in life was based on the hope of jumping really far into a sandpit. Yeah? Now, you guys, you guys are laughing, but that, that's the point with idols, actually. That's the point. We need to identify and call them out for what they are. Once you actually say it, you realize this is absolutely ridiculous. If I think that, um, you know, me getting home from work on a, on a Friday evening, and, and if only I can sit there in peace and quiet with a glass of wine and Netflix, if only I could do that, I'd be sorted. No, 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 no. It might be a nice thing, it might be relaxing, but look, Netflix and wine is not going to transform your life, okay? So we need to identify those idols and call them out. And that's, I think this is one of the ways um, that we as church collectively together can serve one another. I think particularly for those of us who are in connect groups, I think if you're in a, in a, in a connect group, that's a really good opportunity to be really open and honest with one another in terms of what some of your idols are and just to call them out when you see them. And it's not a, it's not a harsh thing, it's not a heavy thing. It is a loving thing. Okay, so, it's clear that we all fail to meet that standard of being those who are able to approach this God. That first hurdle of, uh, of clean hands, the second one of a pure heart, and the third one of not trusting in idols. We fail to meet the standards. We are unable to approach this great and glorious God. But what if we could approach? What would that look like? How would that feel? Well, if we could approach, we would find that this God is not only owner and creator, but he is also giver. Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You know, a remarkable thing about God, this is another way that he is entirely different to us. We as people, and I hope I'm not coming across as too uh, disrespectful here, we are all inherently needy. All of us here are needy. We have needs, be it oxygen, food, sleep, social interaction. We are needy beings. Actually, if you think about it, part of the reason why we often um, shy away from relationship or back off from one another is because we realize that. 
we realize that we are all inherently needy. And we think, well, oh, maybe I won't have that coffee with that friend because, you know what, I'm quite tired and quite stressed with life and family and work. And I know that if, if I meet with them, they're going to share all of their burdens with me as well. So I'm just not going to bother with that. Okay? I'm just being honest. I've been there. I've, I, I've, I've been there, yeah. So Nelson's been there as well, just the two of us. Okay? <laughs> so we are inherently needy people. But God, on the other hand, is not needy. God, in fact, needs nothing. God has everything that he needs. God is entirely self-sufficient. So whereas for us, often our, our default is towards receiving rather than giving, God is inherently a giver. You know, if we were able to approach God, and this is, this is really important for us, I think this is the thing that God really got me with this week. If we were able to approach God, God wouldn't be looking at us in terms of what we could give to him. He'd be looking in terms of what he could give to us. And that, that has been the big thing for me this week. I think for far too long I've looked at God as if he's wanted something from me. So I've tried to serve him and do things for him and I've stressed and I've strained and I've just not been satisfied in life. And do you know what, this week, you know, just God has helped me to see again, he's not looking for anything from me. Because in fact, there's nothing really that I can give to him. He is the one who gives to me. So if we were able to approach this God, we would realize that he is not only owner and creator, but he is a giver. And when he gives, he gives good things. Again, very different to us. We are primarily to receive. What we do give as well, but let's be honest, oftentimes when we give, it's the, it's the, sort of, it's the dregs of what we don't really want. I find this with my little boy, Evan. He is, um, he's, he's learning what it is to share, um, and, he, and he's becoming more generous, which is a really positive thing. But oftentimes, the things I receive from Evan are like the chewed up bits of food that he's just not interested in anymore, okay? So he does give, but it's like... It's not the best gift in the world, if we're being entirely honest. And we are all like Evan. We prefer to receive rather than give. God is not like us. He gives and gives and gives and gives. And what does he give? He gives good things. He gives blessing and righteousness. This amazing God gives good things. But we've just established that we're not able to approach this God. We do not live with clean hands or a pure heart. But there is, a, there is a hint of good news towards the end from verse 7 onwards. We are actually told that there is one who is able to approach God. Who is he and how is he able to approach God? Well, he is described as the king of glory who is strong and mighty in battle. And his name is Jesus. How is this Jesus able to approach God? Well, He's able to approach God because he is the one who does come with clean hands and a pure heart. He comes with clean hands. This Jesus never put a foot wrong. In 33 years on this earth, he never put a foot wrong. He upheld the law of God absolutely perfect all the way through. Every single day, 10 out of 10. There'd be nothing that he'd be able to pin on him. Nothing that anyone who ever saw him or interacted with him would honestly be able to say that he did wrong. Even when Jesus was arrested and taken away to be crucified, there were false witnesses brought in. Those false witnesses couldn't even get their fake, uh, fake stories about him to agree. That's how bad it was, okay? This Jesus has never put a foot wrong. I, I, I cannot get my head around that. For me to do that for a day would just, I think my head would actually explode. He did that for 33 years. 
He lived with clean hands. He lived with a pure heart as well. If you look through the gospel, uh, the, the four accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament in the Bible, um, and just look at when, whenever Jesus explains what he's doing and why he's doing it, his common response is, I'm doing this for God the Father. I'm doing it for his glory. All the way through, his focus is on what makes God the Father glorified. So even when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's about to be taken away, he's about to be um, crucified, he's there praying in the garden, and he says, Father, it's not my will, but let your will be done. He is the only one who has an entirely pure heart. So, and why is this Jesus described as mighty in battle? Verse 8, he is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Well, you know, look, our, our dirty hands and our dirty hearts, they're basically shorthand for our sin. Sin is the things that we think, say, and do which are displeasing and dishonoring to God. They're the areas that we fall short of his perfect standards. Now, as we've seen, our sin has separated us from God. It's meant that we are unable to approach his glorious God. We are unable to get ourselves clean enough to be received by him. And we can try and try and try and try, but we will fail and fail and fail and fail. You know, my son Evan, he, um, our, his nursery is a five-minute walk from our house. And the common experience for me when dropping him off at the nursery is he arrives at nursery pretty much most days not particularly clean. He arrives with, you know, snot and dribbling, various things on his clothes, and I hand him over, and I feel a little bit kind of nervous and maybe slightly judged uh, by the folks at the nursery thinking, well, have you not dressed him correctly? Has he not got clean clothes? Well, the reality is, you know, barely 20 minutes earlier, he, he had his clean clothes put onto him, but somehow between clothes being put on and getting to nursery, they are dirty again. It's just the same with our sin, okay? So we can clean and clean and clean and clean and clean, but we're never going to get entirely clean. We can never approach this God by ourselves. What Jesus does, this Jesus mighty in battle, is that he fights the battle against our sin on our own behalf. So where I have been utterly unable to live with clean hands and a pure heart, Jesus says, no, Ash, no, I've got this. He's done it on my behalf. He's lived that perfect life. Well, I could never live it. He's done it on my behalf. And then on the cross, you see what happened on the cross was Jesus was taking on himself the punishment that should rightly fall on all of us for our wrongdoing, our turning away from God, our rebellion. And on the cross, Jesus again says, Ash, now I've got this. I'm taking it on myself. That is why he's described as Jesus, sorry, the king mighty in battle. He has done what none of us could ever do and he's done it on our behalf. This Jesus was victorious over both sin and death. And he fought that battle so that we could go with him to approach God the Father again. So I recognize in myself that I have absolutely no right to know this amazing God who has created all things and owns all things and, and is a great giver. I have no right to come by myself. But because Jesus has done what I've been unable to do, I can go hand in hand with him to approach and to know that God and to know the love of God. I'm able to approach God and God, when he looks at me, doesn't look at all the rubbish that I've done in the past week. He sees Jesus and he says, Ash, come right in. Come right in and know me. Come into my family. 
And this, guys, is such good news. It's good news for everyone here in this room. It is good news for all of Bristol. It is good news indeed for all of the world. That is why churches exist, for this very good news. And I think um, I'm aware that time is getting away from us somewhat. So I'm going to ask the, the musicians to, to pop, up, um, pop up again. But you know, this, um, all that we've heard about God and about ourselves and about how we ought to respond, I think it, it leads us in one direction. It leads us to... Um, it leads us to an awareness that there is an open invitation to all of us. No matter where we've come from, no matter what we've done, no matter how much we have heard of God or haven't heard of God, there is an open invitation to all of us to come and know this amazing God. I'd just like to say, for some of us here who, who've maybe been Christians for a little while, um, I think it's possible to lose sight of the privilege that it is to know this God the privilege that it is to come into his presence. And I say that because that's something that really just impacted me in this past week. The ability for us to gather here collectively together, to hear God speak to us, to pray together, to sing together, that is no small thing. That is no small thing at all. To be able to gather together in connect groups and do the same, that is no small thing. There are many parts uh, of the world where this kind of thing would be, would be illegal. We would all be in danger of death if we were to do this. It is no small thing. It is an absolute privilege. So my encouragement, and particularly to those who would call themselves Christians, is make the most of the privilege. Make the most of it. God wants to receive us. He's more interested in us coming to him, not for what we can give, but that we might know him. And for some of us here today, um, we wouldn't call ourselves Christians we wouldn't call ourselves followers of Jesus. I, I want to say to you, actually, you know, this, this God who we have seen, he is interested in you. He is interested in relationship with you. He is actively coming after you. He's not looking for what you can do for him. He's not looking for you to impress him by your perfect life or, uh, or, or living um, in a really charitable way. He just wants you for you. He needs nothing for, from you, but he just wants you for you.